You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Psalm uh, chapter 1. Now here's kind of the game plan. We're going to take one psalm per week, okay? Even the longer psalms, we'll, we'll just tackle them one per week and uh, work our way through. And I'm excited about that. Uh, just a quick look at each psalm, and I think you will uh, be encouraged by studying way through the psalms and seeing some of the themes that are repeated and emphasized. It, it will be a, a rich time in God's Word. Claire asked me the other day, she said, what's your favorite psalm? And in a matter of about a minute, I named about 12 or 13. <laughs> I, just, I just kept saying, well, I like this one and this one. And really my answer to that question is what, my favorite psalm is usually the one I'm reading at the time uh, just because they're so wonderful. And um, through the years, I, I find myself, we got, if you need a handout, raise your hand. We got a handout coming in. Uh, so several came in over here. Um, we, uh, I find myself through the years getting more and more acquainted with some of the lesser-known psalms. You know, we know Psalm 23, right? That's a, a, a famous uh, psalm. Uh, you know, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, those are famous psalms. Uh, but the lesser-known psalms are, are rich, and so we're going to look at all those different psalms. Anybody else need one over here? And then we got a few in this area. Anybody else need a, a handout from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 1? All right, a couple back there. Okay, anybody else? Raise your hand if you didn't get one. Back here in the back, anybody else? Okay, all right. Everybody's got one. Now I expect you to take notes. All right? Okay, good. Psalm 1. Now we're going to do this each week. I'm going to give you a summary of the Psalms. Uh, these are two statements that help us to understand what the Psalms are all about. The first one comes from Kendall Easley. If you've heard me preach any length of time, you've heard me mention his name. He was a professor that I had in seminary. I had him for Greek, and he was one of the best teachers I've ever had. He just knew how to teach the Word of God. And he wrote a, a book. Uh, for Home and Publishing, uh, which uh, is an overview of the Bible. And in that book, he, he has a one-sentence summary of each book of the Bible, which I find very helpful. I, I like summaries to help me kind of wrap my mind around something big. He'll give you that one sentence. So if you were with us during our Ezekiel study, I gave you a one-sentence summary that came from Dr. Easley. Well, this is his one-sentence summary of the book of Psalms. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so we'll see in the Psalms people going uh, through uh, some, some wonderful times and people going through some very dark times. And you'll see all range of situations and circumstances surface in the Psalms. But in each and every one of them, the, the, the theme that... Uh, that rises up is the idea that God is worthy of our praise and worthy of our confidence, worthy of our trust, no matter what we're going through in, in our lives. 
So that's a, a good one-sentence summary of the book of Psalms. And I love this quote from John Piper. I'll share it each week because I think it really, it really connects with us in terms of why we love the Psalms so much. Why, why People that have been reading the Bible for any length of time find themselves drawn to the Psalms. Why is that? Well, look what it says in that statement from John Piper. The Psalms are songs. Now, stop real quick. Look at me. You understand that the book of Psalms, 150 chapters, is actually the Hebrew, a Hebrew hymn book. It's a collection of hymns or songs that were used in praise and worship to God among the people of Israel. So he says the Psalms are songs. They are poems. There's an artistic poetic element to the Psalms. And he writes, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. I think that's why people connect with the book of Psalms. Because you name an emotion, you'll find it somewhere in this book. Good emotions, uh, troubling emotions, uh, highs, lows, you'll find it here in this book. So I think that's why we love the Psalms so much. Because no matter what we're walking through or experiencing or how we're feeling, we can, we, can, we can find ourselves in this book somewhere and learn how to connect with God in the midst of what we are encountering. So we made it to Psalm chapter 1. And you'll notice there it says book one right above the, the first psalm. Uh, the book of Psalms is broken up into five different books. Five different books. So this is the beginning of book one and the, the beginning of the entire book. And I believe that Psalm 1 is put here for a reason. I believe Psalm 1 really is, a, is, a, is a, an overview of the entire book. What the Lord wants us to glean as, our, as we study the Psalms. Derek Kidner, and you'll hear me quote Derek Kidner a lot because he wrote a very helpful commentary on the Psalms. Derek Kidner said, It seems likely that this Psalm, Psalm 1, was specially composed as an introduction to the whole Psalter. Certainly it stands here as a faithful doorkeeper, confronting those who would be in the congregation of the righteous. So it begins by contrasting the righteous and the wicked. And, and Kidner calls it a doorkeeper to the rest of the Psalms. If, if you're among the congregation of the righteous, you'll want to continue your journey through these Psalms and embracing the truths of these Psalms. And so let's read it. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Now notice there's no small letters right above verse 1. A lot of the Psalms, there'll be small letters that give us a little bit of information about who wrote it or the circumstances in which it was written. But there are none for this. We don't know who wrote Psalm 1. But it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Uh, powerful, powerful words. A great start to a study of the entire Book. Now notice there in verse 5, he mentions that sinners will not 
stand in the congregation of the righteous. The congregation of the righteous. So this psalm is meant to highlight those who are gathered together who are called the righteous. Now just kind of a quick word about being righteous. I I covered this in my sermon this past Sunday uh, when I talked about the breastplate of righteousness. But the Bible uses righteousness in two major ways. One, it speaks of our position in Christ. So we are not righteous in and of ourselves. In fact, the Bible says we are not righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. So we who are unrighteous cannot come into the presence of a righteous, perfectly righteous, holy God. So that's why God sent His Son, because He loves us. Jesus came to the uh, earth. He took on human flesh. He went to the cross. He took our sin upon Himself. And He paid the penalty for our unrighteousness. He He paid the penalty for the sins that we have committed. He died for our sins. But also, uh, Jesus lived a perfect life. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. So when we are saved at the moment of conversion, when we place our faith in Christ, our sins are washed away because He died for our sins, and we place our faith in Him, and He applies His shed blood to our sin, and our sins are taken away. Uh, And then He gives us, as a gift, His perfect righteousness. It's like we failed the test of life and Jesus took the punishment for our failure. But then he gave us his perfect score. He gave us his righteousness. So when God looks at us, he looks at us as being clothed in the righteousness of his son. So now we can come into his presence and we can have a relationship with him because of that gift of righteousness. Theologians call this justification. That you are declared righteous not because you're good. You're declared righteous based upon what Christ has done for you. Based upon the finished work of Christ. So the first way the Bible uses the word righteousness is to speak of the righteousness that God gives us as a gift. It is our position before Him. Again, theologians call it alien or foreign righteousness or imputed righteousness. It's righteousness that was given to us. It's not ours. Everybody got that? It's good news. So if you're saved, you have the righteousness of Christ uh, robing you. That's how God looks at you now. That's your position. Now, as Christians who are saved and forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ, now we have a decision to make. Are we going to pursue righteousness in an ever-increasing way in our lives now that we've been forgiven, now that we have a relationship with God, now that the Holy Spirit lives within us, now that we have the Word of God and the church around us? Are we going to pursue righteousness so that our, our practice comes into greater and greater conformity with our position? So he speaks here of the congregation of the righteous. I believe he's talking about people that are rightly related to God, people that, that to use our, our terminology, that are saved. People have placed their faith in the Lord. They are, they are saved, justified. They are righteous before God. And as a community of believers now, they are pursuing righteousness. They, they are pursuing uh, right living in their lives. That's what he means by the congregation of the righteous. And in Psalm 1, there are some characteristics, four major ones, characteristics of the congregation of the righteous. So here's here's what it ought to look like. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you've been robed in the righteousness of Christ, if you're pursuing righteousness practically in your day-to-day life, you want to obey God and you want to do the right thing and you want to be more like Jesus, if you're you're doing that, these are some characteristics that will uh, stand out in your life. Number one. The righteous are those who refuse to be influenced by the ungodly. 
They refuse to be influenced by the ungodly. Now look how this psalm begins. Blessed is a man who walks not. So he uses a negative here to speak of something that ought not to be true of a righteous person. A person that's right with God and pursuing godliness. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Again, Kidner says here, certainly the three complete phrases, counsel of the wicked, way of sinners, seat of scoffers, the three uh, aspects, three degrees of departure from God uh, here uh, are portraying conformity to the world at three different levels. Kidner says, this picture someone that is accepting the world's advice, because he says there, blessed the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It speaks of someone that is, that is being party to its ways, when he says, nor stands in the way of sinners. And someone that is adopting the most fatal of its attitudes, sits in the seat of scoffers. And so what he's saying here is this, that a righteous person doesn't let influence from an ungodly world move them in an ungodly direction. That's not how a righteous person uh, wants to live. Or let me say it like this. A godly person does not orient their life, uh, life toward evil. A godly person does not orient their life towards evil. Uh, many times when you hear this passage taught or you're reading a book about Psalm 1 or a commentary, uh, many times as an illustration, Lot is mentioned. Now you remember Lot? Lot was the nephew of Abraham and Lot had a family, he had livestock, and Abraham had a family, he had livestock, and they both had servants, and their holdings were growing, they were both wealthy, and they were flourishing, they were prospering, and their, their servants began to quarrel because they were running into each other, they, they were trying to graze the same land with their cattle, and so Abraham and Lot got together, and Abraham said, Listen, you choose where you want to go, and I'll go somewhere else. You choose. And the Bible says in Genesis that Lot chose to go, to go make his home over towards Sodom. And we know from other passages in Genesis that Sodom was a wicked, wicked place. Before you know it, Lot's there in Sodom with his family. His family's being influenced by this evil, and God's about to destroy it, and some angels have to come and snatch them away to rescue him and his family. But the evil of Sodom had so infiltrated the family that Lot's wife looked back during the escape when God told her not to. You know what the Bible says? She turned into a pillar of salt. She had gotten out of Sodom, but Sodom had not gotten out of her. And that's an illustration of verse 1. He kind of he cozied up to Sodom. He uh, got comfortable with the ways of Sodom, the, the way of sinners there, the counsel of the wicked. And, and before you know it, he's right there in the middle of a bunch of scoffers, people who are rebellious toward God. But a godly person does not orient their life towards evil. Now, you understand, don't you, this is a challenge for us because... We are constantly bombarded with ungodly messages and worldviews. We are constantly bombarded with ungodly images and examples, uh, as is our custom. This past Sunday night, when we were watching the Super Bowl in the CLC and eating a lot of food, we, we, um, 
you know, and of course, we always turn off the halftime show, and we had a little devotion for the, for the students there, and they played a game, and Jared talked to them and shared some scripture with them, and it was a, a good time. Um, that's a dual function. We turn it off, number one, so we can have the devotional time, but number two, so we don't watch what's on the screen, because I don't know if you've watched the Super Bowl halftime any or seen clips of it. It's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a pure thing, right? And uh, it's, but it's just everywhere. It's just, it's just everywhere. Uh, we're bombarded with these ungodly images and examples. I came across this quote from Albert Moeller uh, years ago. He said, When you consume a culture's entertainment, listen, you eventually consume its morality. So if you're being inundated with images and worldviews and entertainment, and, and that is front and center in your life, in what you're watching, what you're thinking about, what you're hearing, what you're talking about. If that's front and center, pretty soon the morality that's being portrayed in that entertainment will begin to sway you and become your morality or lack of morality. And so a godly person does not orient their life toward evil. In light of the evil all around us, the ungodliness all around us, we must be vigilant so that we are not swayed. So if you're a, a, a righteous person, you're, you've been saved and you want to pursue righteousness in your life along with other believers, the congregation of the righteous, then first of all, don't set up your tent like Lot did by Sodom. Right? Don't, don't get comfortable in Sodom. It's, Sodom's not your home. It's, it's not a place you want to hang out and, and learn to be like. You, you want to be different than Sodom. And, and you, don't want to, you want to refuse to be influenced by the ungodly. So be, be vigilant. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. Be vigilant uh, in your uh, life. And on behalf of your children and grandchildren, be vigilant. Because we are bombarded with just ungodly Things. Number two, second characteristic of the congregation of the righteous. This passage speaks of people that joyfully engage God's word. People, people that joyfully engage God's word. And look what it says in verse two as a way of contrast. The righteous man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Law there is the word Torah. Uh, Lord there is the divine name of God, the covenant name of God, sometimes translated Yahweh, uh, the I Am. So his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Uh, we are going to be reminded here in chapter 1 and all throughout the Psalms that the Word of God is an amazing gift. The fact that the God who created the universe has chosen to condescend to our level and speak to us so that we have truth by which to learn how to know Him and walk with Him and glorify Him. We can have categories of, of truth and, and morality and right and wrong because He's spoken to us. The Bible is a great gift. And we should see it from that perspective. And if we believe the Bible is a great gift, it will affect how we interact with the Bible. The Word of God's amazing gift that we should, first of all, delight in. Delight. And he says there in verse 2, His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, here's something I found when it comes to regular, consistent 
Bible reading. There have been times in my life where I have been deficient in reading my Bible regularly. And it's just kind of hit and miss, and I got no plan. I'm just kind of, you know, just, you know, kind of snatching a little bit here, a little bit here when I can. And I'm just deficient in reading the Bible. And I found in those moments, I don't really want to read the Bible. I don't, I'm not reading it, and I don't, I don't have this great desire to read it. But then, when I go from deficiency to, to discipline, things begin to change. When I get disciplined to say, you know what, I'm going to have a plan, and I'm going, even if I don't feel like I'm going to read my Bible. And I start to engage the Bible regularly, consistently. Something begins to change in my heart. And over time, I see myself going from deficiency to discipline to diligence. Now, uh, now I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm on top of things. I'm staying consistent. I'm, 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 I'm really growing in my appreciation for the Word as I read it and, and uh, becomes a regular part of the fabric of my life. And then when that happens, I find myself going to the fourth category of delight. So let me say it again. I've seen myself, my own life, go from deficiency to discipline to diligence, to delight. But you don't get from deficiency to delight without the discipline and the diligence. Does that make sense? And that's where most of us are missing it. The, dif- the, the diligence, the, the discipline to have a plan and to have a place where you meet with God and open your Bible and set aside time and put your phone down and, and actually read the Bible. We, we don't make time for that. And here's what I found. I'm telling you, this is, this is such an important statement. I found it true in my life. I've seen it in other people's lives. The more you read the Bible, the more you want to read the Bible. That's just how it works. So if you say, well, I don't have this desire to read God's Word, start reading it. And I promise you, if you'll start reading it, the more you want to read it. Now, because of just years of discipline and diligence in my life and the delight that I experience now, I can't wait to get to my Bible, Right? If I don't get to it, I feel like I'm missing something uh, important in my life. And so uh, people that engage God's Word, that understand it's an amazing gift, they delight in it. They delight in it. Um, Secondly, the Word of God's amazing gift that we should meditate on. Look what he says there in verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. Now, we need, to, we need to talk about meditation for a moment because in our, in our society, when we think about meditation, we think of uh, Eastern mysticism or transcendental meditation. We think of you know, other world religions like Hinduism or Buddhism, and, and meditation is a very important part of their, of their religion and their worship of their false gods. And in, in, their, in their religious views, when you meditate... You are emptying yourself. You're trying to empty yourself of really of desire, of, of desires that might lead you astray. So you're, you're trying to come to a place of complete emptiness. And the goal, for example, in, in Buddhism is that if you get to that place of no desire, you, you empty yourself completely, then you get, off the, you get off the will of reincarnation, samsara, you get off the will of reincarnation and you reach nirvana. Okay, which is a state of, 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 of perfection, but it's basically just nothingness. That's their view. 
And, and if you've seen maybe someone that's a, a practitioner of one of those, of one of those Eastern religions, if, if you've seen them meditating, they may be chanting, they may be in a posture, a pose, and, and they are trying to empty their mind. Okay, That is the exact opposite of biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind. Biblical meditation is filling up your mind. In fact, the Hebrew word uh, translates something like talk to yourself. That's what the word literally means, kind of talk to yourself. It's kind of like, it's kind of like you, you're reading God's word and you're kind of talking it over in your heart and mind. You're kind of thinking through it. You're, we use the phrase, you're chewing on it. right? You're chewing on God's word. You're, you're actively engaged in thinking about it and, and thinking about how it should affect your life and apply to your life. That's what meditation means. I love this quote from Warren Wiersbe. He says, meditation is to your inner person what digestion is to your body. You make the word a part of your life and you grow. And so some people might say, well, that sounds, um, it sounds a little abstract. So Pastor Wade, how do I practically, how do I meditate on Scripture? How do I fill up my mind with God's word and be like the, the psalmist here. Blessed are those who, who meditate on the law day and night. Well, let me give you just three quick thoughts about that. Number one, and this is a big one for me. I've got to tell myself this all the time. Slow down. Slow down. I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes I'm up in the morning, I'm, you know, have my Bible out, and my mind is racing ahead to things I've got to do. Appointments where I got to be, who's got soccer games, who's got practice, who's got this, who's got that, and where I got to be, and where we got to go, and what we're going to do, and my, you know, things I've got to accomplish during my work, you know, all this stuff. And uh, it's, it's very hard for me to slow down. It really is. And I got to, I got to just, I got to talk to myself. If you ever see me talking to myself, I'm not crazy, or I'm just talking to myself, all right? Because I need to remind myself, slow down. And one of the reasons that we don't, we don't, uh, we don't meditate on the Word more and experience what Psalm 1 is talking about is because we just read through the Scriptures so fast. For example, you may be reading in you know, the Gospel of Matthew and you read the story where uh, the disciples are in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is up on a mountain praying, and the wind kicks up, the waves uh, are, are growing, and, and they're unable to, to continue on across the sea. And these, these professional fishermen who knew the Sea of Galilee very well are scared for their life. They think the boat's going to be overwhelmed by waves. And then it says Jesus comes walking on the water to them. Right? Remember that story? And, and you and I have heard that story before, and we've read it. You can read that story and close your Bible and not give it a second thought. When we ought to be saying... Walked on the water? What? Wow! Wow! Right? I mean, stop and think about the miracle of him walking on the water, right? We, we just got to slow down. Even familiar passages, we got to slow down and think of the import of what is being uh, conveyed in the scripture. So slow down, take your time. It may help you to read a passage, you know, two times or three times. It may help you to. Read it at home and then listen to it on the way to work on, in your vehicle. Our phones now, will, our Bible apps will read them to us, right? So there's all kinds of ways that we can encounter the Word of God, but, but slow down when you're reading the Scripture. Number two, learn to ask questions. 
Now, you may want to put this sheet in the front of your Bible so you can access it, but what I found over the years is I've kind of practiced this asking questions. It just becomes intuitive. So I don't need this list in front of me now because I've done this for so long. Um, but you may want to put these in the front of your Bible just for, to kind of help you get started on this. Um, but when you're reading a passage, ask the question, is there a command to obey? I'm reading this passage is there something that I, I should obey here? For example, I'm reading Ephesians 4, and it says, Be angry and do not sin. What's the command? Don't, sin, don't let anger control you, right? Don't let anger get the best of you where you're sinning in your anger. So, okay, there's a command there. I need to think about that. Am I obeying that command in my life? Uh, is this a command I need to hear? and I need to pray through something here? And, or do people walk on eggshells around? You know, you see what I'm saying? You're, what? Think about the command. Is, it, is there a promise to claim? You read Hebrews 13. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, right? A promise to claim. Hey, even in the midst of the difficult things I'm going through, Jesus said he's here with me. And I believe that. Even though I don't feel it, I believe that and, and, and claim that promise. Is there a, a sin to avoid? I mean, you read a passage of Scripture and uh, it talks about backbiting or murmuring. <laughs> is there a sin I need to avoid there? I read it, uh-oh. Is there a lesson to learn? When you're reading particularly character studies, when you're reading through a, 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 you know, a passage about you know, Abraham or David or you know, Paul or Peter, or just you know, you're reading about these different uh, characters, a lot of times there's a lesson to learn from their life because the Bible is, is very uh, real. It tells us of the spiritual triumphs of our Bible heroes, but it also lets us understand that they failed, and there's a lesson there to learn. Is there a newly learned truth to carry with me? Is there something maybe I wasn't aware of, and I'm reading through it, and God showed me this new truth, and I need to think about this and incorporate this in my life, maybe ask my pastor about it, but it's a newly learned truth. I didn't know that, and I'm reading the Bible, and I'm going to incorporate that into my Life. I remember at my uh, previous church, uh, we had a young couple. Uh, they were newlyweds, and they had both just gotten saved, and they joined our church. And they would sit in a Bible study like this, and I'd say, uh, I'd say, oh, uh, you know the story of David and Goliath. And I'd kind of, you know, go, and they said, no, we don't know it. Well, who's, who's Goliath? Who's David? And it was really helpful for me to realize, hey, these folks are starting at ground zero. And it would make me kind of back up and explain scriptures. And, and it was very helpful for me. Um, but like every day they open their Bibles like a new truth, uh, you know, something they didn't know. And they're learning. Is there, is there, is there something uh, that you need to, to, to learn, a newly learned truth to carry with you? And so begin to ask yourself those questions. Uh, another question I like to ask, what's this passage teach me, teach me about God? What's this passage teach me about humanity? You know, uh, and just begin to ask the passage questions. You'll be su surprised at how much, um, of how much uh, impactful, how many impactful things can surface by asking questions. And then, this is number one, my most effective way to meditate on the scriptures. Talk to God about it. Talk to God about it. So in your prayer, see a lot of people, they don't know how to talk to God. They don't know how to pray. And when they pray... They say the same old things about the same old things, right? They're just repeating themselves, and they're bored by their prayer life, and they're not excited about it. Here's what I've learned. If I will read my Bible, that's God talking to me, and then pray, that's me talking to God, and I talk to God about what I just read, 
and talk about how it affects my life and what I need to see happen in my life in response to what I've read, all of a sudden my prayer life becomes dynamic and vital and I'm talking to God and talking for a while about some things, right? And, and we're just talking. You know, for example, I may, you know, I may read a passage like the parting of the Red Sea and God delivering the uh, Israelites through on dry ground, the destroying Pharaoh's army. And, I, and I, my prayer time may be just praising God for his power. God, wow, I mean, you did that, and you, you, you showed your power on behalf of your people and defeated uh, their enemies, and, and uh, you preserved your people, so one day you can send a Messiah. I just praise your name. And all of a sudden, I'm talking to God, I'm praying to God, I'm, I'm, and I'm thinking about what I just read. And, and those thoughts begin to just take root in my heart, right? I find that to be very helpful to me. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher of the late 1800s, said he delights the Psalm 1 man. He delights, moreover, to meditate in it, to read it by day, think upon it by night. He takes a text and carries it with him all day long. In the night watches when sleep forsakes his eyelids. He museth upon the word of God. In the day of his prosperity, he sings psalms out of the word of God. In the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with promises out of the same books. He's speaking of that, that meditating on the word of God. How many of you, just look at me real quick, how many of you have read a chapter in your Bible reading in the morning, and if someone asked you at lunchtime what you read that morning, you would have no clue? Anybody done that? Guilty, right? What did you read? I'm like, mm, I don't remember, right? If you'll start to meditate on God's word, these three things, slow down, ask questions, pray, talk to God about it, I promise you, you'll start seeing, hey, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, someone says, hey, what'd you read this morning? You'll be able to tell them because you've been thinking about it, right? Now, another helpful thing about meditating is write stuff down. A journal, in our D groups, we talk about hear journals and just writing out what God's teaching you from the word. That's a great way to meditate on God's word. So... Congregation of the righteous, people who refuse to be influenced by the ungodly, people that joyfully engage God's word. Number three, people that are strong and fruitful. Look in verse three. We're going to go real fast here, but look in verse three. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. In other words, when a righteous person delights in God's word and meditates on God's word, it shows up in their life. And Dale Ralph Davis says there are five characteristics that show up in a person's life. And this was so good, I couldn't do better. So I'm going to give these five words real quick. First of all, stability. He says there, he's like a tree planted by streams of water. Listen to me. So many people, even Christians, are miserable, miserable in their life because they have no stability. They're just tossed to and fro with life and circumstances and and emotions, and they just don't have that stability that comes from just, of just standing on the Word of God and letting the Word of God strengthen you and inform you and change you. And they don't have that solid rock, and so they're just, just not stable. And the Bible says he's like a tree planted by streams of water, stability. Second word, vitality, by streams of water. This is not a, a dead, withering type tree. He's like a tree that's planted by water. It's, it's vital. It's, it has life. There's a, a, a spiritual vitality there. And you say, Pastor Wade, what spiritual vitality look like in someone's life? Well, it's hard to define, but you know it if you got it, and you know it if you don't. You know t- tonight if you are living in spiritual vitality. Or if you're just kind of going through the motions. The, the, I guess the opposite of vitality would be stagnancy, right? Apathy. 
Number three, productivity. He says he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit. And so the person that delights in the law of the Lord, meditates in the law of the Lord, meditates in the word of God, is a person that will bear fruit in their life. It will show up in their day-to-day life. Good things will come from their life as God does a work on the inside of them, and it overflows out of their life. Durability. It says there, its leaf does not wither. It's comparing the, the righteous man who's passionate for the word to a tree. And he said it's, it's, it's durable. His leaf does not wither. It, it, he, the, the, the person that takes the word of God seriously has a spiritual durability. Um, they, they love Jesus. And guess what? Ten years from now, they're still going to love Jesus. Amen? You can count on them. Durability. And, and then the next word is prosperity. It says, verse 3, all that he does, he prospers. The hand of God is upon this person, uh, prospering this person. That there is spiritual success. There uh, there are good things happening as a result of this person uh, encountering different people in relationships and encountering the world in different ways. Good things are happening. Prosperity is happening in that person's life. So I don't know about you. But I, I would love to have these five words be, to be true of my life. Stability, vitality, productivity, durability, prosperity. How do you get there? Delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Direct connection. That's how you get there. That's how you get to those five things in your life. Number four, and we'll be through. I want to just show you this very sharp contrast at the end. Congregation of the righteous. These are people who refuse to be influenced by the ungodly. People that joyfully engage God's word. People that are strong and fruitful. And people with hope. People with hope. Now look what it says in verse 4. He's drawing a contrast here. And again, this is the start of the entire Psalms. Right? The entire book. He says, The wicked are not so. So the wicked are not stable, vital, productive, durable, prosperous. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff after the wind, uh, that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here in verses 4 through 6, the second half of the psalm, the wicked is contrasted with the, the blessed person or the righteous person. And so the, 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 the category here for us would be the righteous are people that are saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ. The wicked are those who are not saved, that do not have that relationship with God through Christ. And the wicked person here is compared to chaff. And what is, what is chaff? The, the picture here is of a threshing floor at the time of the grain harvest. This is back in you know, ancient times. The threshing floors of, of Palestine... Um, were on hills, and they were on hills for a reason because the breeze would blow. And so these, these folks that had harvested grain would, would pick up the grain with like a pitchfork, and they kind of throw it in the air, and the, the dead part, the chaff, would be blown away by the wind, and the grain that was uh, good to, to use would fall back down because it had weight to it. That's the picture uh, being used here. Um, when, the, when the wind blows it away, it is uh, no longer... Uh, it's no longer there. It's just blown away. And the remaining chaff is scattered or burned. And the psalmist says, that's what it's like when you don't know God. 
That's what it's like when you don't have a relationship. When, you, when you're not among the congregation of the righteous, you're like chaff. Now, what does that mean? First of all, the chaff pictures the empty, futile life of unbelievers. It was worthless, right? Just, just wanted to be blown away. Had no, had no value. They wanted it gone so they could uh, collect the grain that had value. So this picture is empty, futile life of unbelievers. If you want a picture of an empty life, read the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon says, hey, I tried to do life without God and it's all vanity. It's all empty. It's all worthless. And also, this, this shaft pictures the coming judgment because the remaining shaft was burned. And when the Bible speaks of judgment for those that are not saved, it uses the imagery of burning all throughout the Scriptures. Here's what that means. The wicked person is headed for an eternity of destruction. That's where a person does not know the Lord. They're headed for that. Eternity of destruction, separated from God in an awful place called hell. They're like chaff. But, and here's the contrast that almost wants us to walk away with. The person that has been declared righteous by Jesus has a relationship with God that will last forever. Because look what he says in verse 5. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They'll be, they'll be cast away like chaff, separated from God. Nor sinners of the congregation of the righteous. They won't mingle with those who are right with God on judgment day. But he says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked will perish, but not the righteous. Instead of perishing opposite, they have life. Life eternal. Heaven. Eternity with God. So, let me show you the contrast here and we'll be through Notice the first word in the psalm. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed, right? Blessed is the man. What's the last word? Perish. The point is this. You'll either be blessed in a relationship with God, or you will perish because you do not have a relationship with God. That's the contrast. And that's how the psalm starts. It's like the the one who collected these different Hebrew hymns, Put this one first, as if to say, who are you? Before you continue on through this hymn book, who are you? Are you the blessed man? Are you the the person who stands in the congregation of the righteous? Or are you wicked and far from God? It stands as a very stark contrast and warning. And I believe a call for people to come and be made right with the one true God. But here's the reality. If you know Jesus, you've been made righteous. You've been justified by faith. And now you have hope that lasts beyond this world into eternity. And that ought to characterize your life. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.